When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, listeners. We have a special announcement for you today. Slate is having a holiday sale. For a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off for your first year. This is a great deal. You think of it like this. You pay $10 or $15 a month for your music subscriptions, streaming subscriptions, etc. With Slate Plus, for less than $4 a month, you will get members-only content on our show and many other Slate podcasts, no ads ever on any Slate podcast, and unlimited reading on the Slate.com website. And best of all, you'll be supporting this show, all our other podcasts, and all of the journalism that Slate works so hard to give you. Again, we are giving you $25 off your first year as a member through December 29th. So you can sign up now at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Again, that is Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Thanks. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Sex and Violence in the City edition. On today's show, the canonical stage and screen musical West Side Story has returned. It's a This one is a film adaptation courtesy of Steven Spielberg. This new version, it's an attempt to correct for the now obviously glaring errors of taste and judgment of the original, especially when it comes to the depiction of its Puerto Rican characters. We will discuss all of the above, I'm sure. And then when Sex and the City went off the air, Donald Trump was still a punchline. Global capitalism was still throbbing with overconfidence. And Brooklyn was uh, still something of an also-ran. The show returns Carrie Bradshaw, the one-time chronicler of urban mores to a world of drastically changed mores. We will discuss how well that transposition uh, works. And then finally, New York Magazine. It has a wonderful, wonderful, really, truly well-conceived and executed package, as we say in the magazine biz, about New York City and the movies. Uh, it includes a magnificent, roughly 100, I think it might be 101 best New York City films. We discuss, and of course, uh, on such an occasion, we will pick out our own such list. Uh, joining me today is Dana, 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 Dana. You are not the afterthought today, Dana Stevens. You're first up in the intros. <laughs> Am I not usually? Am I usually <laughs> the second in the intros? You're always, I guess I'll be, I'll be honored pre- then. I never noticed over the course of you 13 know, years. Oh God, Dana, that's why last week I said you were and now perennial afterthought, Dana Stevens. <laughs> I thought you laughed because you understood the joke. Anyway, Dana, let me say, first of all, of course, you're the film critic for Slate. You and I are, you know, I essentially we're, we're, we're brothers from a different mother here. We're a pair of fainting couch flanners. Like we can barely get up in the morning and, and function as embodied oxygen and a calorie uh, burning creatures. But Julia Turner, our other usual third, is a towering paragon of, uh, of real world uh, overachievement. And it's unsurprising that occasionally, just occasionally, something comes up in her very busy life. And at the last minute, she can't make it. That happened yesterday. Um, but we're going to make do. We're, we've got great fill-ins. And it's just going to be fun maybe to have a couple of conversations that are just the two of us. So anyway, all of that is to say, once again, you're kind of an afterthought, Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Um, <laughs> Okay, Dana, you ready? Ready to Let's do roll. this? Link Let's hands? Roll. 
Let's make it. Okay. Um, West Side Story was mostly associated in its first iterations with total commercial and artistic triumph. The show, uh, of course, uh, is an updated Broadway musical retelling of the Romeo and Juliet tragedy in place of the feuding Capulets and Montagues. You had Italian and Puerto Rican street gangs vying for turf in mid-century New York City. The original creators were or have become Mount Rushmore quality eminences. The music was by Leonard Bernstein. The lyrics were by a very young Stephen Sondheim. The choreography was by Jerome Robbins, on and on. Uh, The 1957 play was a Tony-winning smash. The movie in 1961 is arguably one of the most successful film adaptations of a stage musical of all time. It won nine Oscars, including Best Picture. However, the show was created by four white men, none of none of them of Italian or Puerto Rican descent. Stephen Sondheim even admitted he didn't want to take the job because he'd never even met a Puerto Rican person. From our point of view now, the movie is appropriative. It's stereotyping. Uh, it's uh, uh, reductive, maybe, about poverty and street life, about which it can be uh, overly romantic. It's whitewashing and it's casting the film famously has Nat- Natalie Wood as the young Puerto Rican heroine. Uh, it lies <laughs> arguably at the center of a Venn diagram of, of cancelable offenses, and people do argue passionately both sides of that question. Anyway, it is now returned with Steven Spielberg as the director to the big screen and Tony Kushner as the screenwriter. The iconic dancing by Jerome Robbins has been um, picked up and reimagined by Justin Peck, the choreographer, a.k.a. three more white men. There's a lot to discuss here. Why don't we start by listening to a clip? Okay, well now we're joined by a very good friend of the program, Isaac Butler. Isaac, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here, Stephen. Uh, Isaac, before we get going, uh, tell tell me about your book again, please. Uh, yes, my book is called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act, and it is a cultural history of the 20th century through the lens of acting and the theories of acting that changed uh, American pop culture. I am very eager to talk about that with uh, you and Dana and about her book, too. Um, for now, though, let's start with West Side Story. I mean... Um, Uh, A a musical with deep connections to the method, in fact. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it could scarcely be a more canonical American musical. It's very easy relatively to put on with young high school casts. It obviously speaks maybe in some way to the interests or preoccupations of young people. It gets revived constantly. Uh, And yet. So why don't we begin with the musical's obvious virtues and its place in musical uh, theater history, and then we'll move on to its uh, really deeply problematic issues. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I mean, the musical is made by three geniuses um, operating at, you know, the top of their game for where they were at that point in their careers. You have Jerome Robbins, who conceived of it directed it and choreographed it and the the choreography which is somewhat referenced in this film's choreography but not recreated is is legendary in part because of the film and then you have Leonard Bernstein and you know the music 
for this musical, I think is, is what people are the most attached to the, the incredible score, the incredible melodies, the, the brilliant, brilliant arrangements, you know, even if you see a pretty bad production of the show, you know, for example, the one, uh, I think it was in 2009 that Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book directed was not a good production of the show, but it had a full orchestra playing that music. And that's sort of all that matters, you know? And then you have Stephen Sondheim, his really his first, professional gig writing the lyrics he spoke very disparagingly throughout most of the rest of his career of the job he did on the lyrics for this show but the lyrics are 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 pretty astounding we we would all love to do such lousy work as as that which Sondheim uh did on that show so you have these three geniuses operating at the at the top of their game and and also a very skilled craftsman who I don't think is quite at their level of Arthur Lawrence who wrote the book for the musical um, the original musical ran for about a year and a half. It was a small hit. It was not a, it was not a huge hit. Um, but you know, it, it's place in the culture grew and grew and grew, uh, largely because of the film and the album of the soundtrack. Sondheim always credited the album of the film's soundtrack as actually being responsible for its place in the culture because suddenly it was played on radios. And so those songs became familiar and became standards. And then it was revived on Broadway after the film and became a much bigger hit. Interesting. But if you read Sondheim's writings and interviews and talking about the show later on in his life, he thought that this was a show that, you know, to him, songs were rooted in character. And he said over and over and over again, West Side Story has no characters. It's Mm. a melodrama. It's just about its plot and about type. We didn't do any research. It's not really a sociologically minded show. We didn't really know anything. I mean, he was, he spoke very cuttingly about it. Um, And in fact, I think what the new film does in large part, thanks to Tony Kushner's rewritten screenplay for it, is it fixes all of those problems. It has, you know, a cycle. It has a sociological frame. The characters have depth. They feel like real people. You know, he's gone to great lengths to kind of fix all those things that 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 are shortcomings in the show, I think. And it's paid off majestically. I'm glad we're getting around to the movie. I have a lot to say about the history of the property, and I wrote about that a bit, and well, a lot actually, in my review of the movie, which turned into more of a sort of reflection on the history of the show, which mm-hmm. is fascinating. Um, and here, Steve, I'm going to do some Metcalf-style table pounding. The movie is fantastic. It exceeded my expectations by so far. I was looking forward to it. The idea of Spielberg doing a musical, you know, obviously the score is wonderful, and the singing and the the, the music is going to sound beautiful no matter what kind of setting you put it in. But something about Spielberg turning to musicals so late in his career, I don't know. I just I didn't know if this musical could find new life in that way. And I thought maybe the best it could feel like would be a museum piece. And I was completely wrong. And I think Isaac really agrees with me here. And maybe you could find some nitpicking things to say about this musical, but especially given the fact that it had disappointing box office returns its first weekend. And I can understand why with Omicron surging and, you know, not a moment that a lot of people are going to movies. I just really want to use my bully pulpit as a critic for a moment and just say this is a great movie we can talk about the performances we can talk about the choreography you know that but it's a it's a musical that moves you know it's a musical with a camera that that knows how to move and how to film dance and song and I was completely enthralled by it I've now seen it twice and I'm trying to send everybody to see it that I possibly can I just have to jump in and say unfortunately I think I'm the skunk at the picnic and I'm probably wrong or it's just not a question of wrong or right but right but let me explain why at least um I needed something bigger there's I, I have no Knit to pick. I actually think they fucking nailed it down to the last frame almost. But 
I needed to understand, and maybe one or both of you can speak to this, why we need this movie now as something more than, you know, it's going to win a ton of Oscars and it's, it's a, you know, in the best sense, a vanity project for senior talents of Hollywood and on and on and on. And like, they get a 10, like they did it. I just watched it and I thought, okay, for the, for the, for the very important redressing of previous grievances against the property, you know, again, the, the IP, the, to the extent that the IP contains this, I think, I think we can all agree, gross insult to um, Latinx people in America. I, this movie goes some way to correcting that. Kushner brought in a lot of people to consult with him um, and talk to talk him through it and help him. Um, also, we should say that there's the Spanish, there's a lot of Spanish spoken in this relative to a movie that's uh, essentially an American production, you know, English language dominant production. There's a lot of Spanish spoken in it that is unsubtitled, a very strong choice, Isaac, that I loved. Um, but I just didn't quite fully understand why I was watching this. Can you help me? Well, I mean, hmm. I mean, it's a story uh, of tribality, right? It's a story of tribality and violence in an America that is beset with these to the point of total social nausea, right? Like we are on the verge of a precipice and we all fucking hate each other based on type in this country. I mean, we don't, but, and we shouldn't, but we sort of do, right? Everyone self-defines by this thing that they're not and revolts them. And they believe that democracy is being handed over to that group of people. And, and so a movie that's about that, you know, reduced to a microcosmic street ballet, I think has some, traction has some built-in relevancy and i kept wanting it to connect with me at that level and instead i felt over and over again you know a love of the leads the music the 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 the, the reliving of the experience of west side story itself and and not a lot more but that maybe it's on me yeah i don't know i mean i think that the original musical is very much about tribalism in part because it is so divorced from the context that it pretends to be set with. And I, I should say here, I don't actually like the original film that much. Yeah. Um, this uh, is a far better film. I just have to say this yes. is a much better movie. It's better yeah. directed. It's better cast. It's more It's more diversely cast. Everything yeah. about Hands it, except, except possibly the choreography. I mean, this is incredible choreography, but it's very close to the Jerome Robbins. So the one place that I might say that the, the first one has an edge on it is the choreography. Go ahead, Isaac. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I just think like, um, uh, I guess I just don't usually hold movies to that stand. That's not a question I ask myself that much when I'm watching yeah, a movie. Like, fair. is this the movie we need today? I mean, Kushner started working on it in seven years ago or something like that. It was supposed to come out last year. You know, there's a lot of weird stuff that gets in the, that that is why it ends up being released. December 2021 instead of, you know, because of the pandemic yeah. and stuff. So I, I guess I, I always find that I find that question very strange and I don't know how to answer That's it. I mean, fair. I think I think Spielberg probably embarked on it because he thought it would be a really great movie and it would be a fun, interesting project to do. And I know just from interviewing him that Kushner, who was originally sort of like, this sounds nuts you know uh uh when he started researching the actual context in the slum clearance authority and what the life of a street kid was like in the 50s and what a white gang was and what a puerto rican gang was and 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 discovered a lot of richness and interesting sort of socio-political context in the material you know that's what he signed on for and what mm -hmm. he was interested to explore right. so i yeah. i know what they were interested to explore just from talking to to people involved in the movie but to me it's like i i think that they have taken this 
this somewhat compromised material and they have made something even better than what the original was uh, out of it and great art is its own excuse. And so to yeah. me, like that's meaningful enough. There's lots of interesting thematic, et cetera, um, 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 meaning about it. Uh, even as it's looking at a historical time period and, um, obviously it is made for an audience in this time period, but I, I appreciated in some ways that it tried to stay as rooted within its own original context as possible. I actually think that's one of the really smart choices they made. Yeah, I mean, I was so relieved, Isaac, that this was not signposted everywhere with sort of like Trump references mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever. Right. There yeah. wasn't like a Kim Kardashian-based character or something <laughs> like that. I saw it with my daughter, who's 15 and who's a huge musical theater nerd and generally does not like film adaptations of musicals, period. She refuses to see Dear Evan Hansen. She refused to see In the Heights. You know, she just is a stage person more. And she was blown away, absolutely loved it. And that was one of her comments, too, that it was updated in a way that was, was subtle and nuanced and it was not constantly plastering in your face, right? I mean, there's some stuff mm-hmm. about trans transgender yep. rights in here because the character of anybody's right. The the in yep. the original, a, a young girl who wants to be a jet, right, and who's sort of a tomboyish girl is here played as a trans man who's trying to be accepted as a man, right? So that and but and and that's not in your face either. I mean, there's no there's no moment when you know anybody stands up and says, "I am trans," you know, "I am a right. trans person oppressed yes. by my community." Um, but that's that's in there. There's stuff about race that's very different from the originally. In addition to the casting question, which is very central, there's also you know. Rita Moreno in there in this presence that's sort of oh, sort yeah. of the equivalent of Doc, the pharmacy owner who shelters Tony in the first movie, right? But the fact that she's this sort of transracial figure who married a white man and kind of occupies a space in between those two communities is really interesting. Um, the song Somewhere is given to her and placed in a different yes. place in the musical, which changes its meaning entirely in a wonderful way. Um, so the presence of Rita Moreno is a huge factor in this movie. But I mean, we haven't even talked about the performances, like Rachel Zegler, the, the girl who was discovered Cinderella style from her YouTube channel, right, for her for her singing voice by Steven Spielberg. It's a wonderful Maria. I I mean, mm. she's so much better cast than Natalie Wood, and not only because oh, yeah. she is Latina and she sings and does her own singing, but just she really gets that character. She's young enough to play it. It's a hard character to get right. The Tony Maria romance is hard to make moving. I think a lot of people, including me, said in their reviews that it's sort of dramatically the most inert part of the show, right? And yet, yeah. I feel like it really came alive, especially on a second viewing. Like, I, I loved those characters, mm-hmm. and, and I cried about four times during their sappy love duets, you know? But but the real thrill of this movie, I think, again, is the kineticism. Like, just seeing somebody who knows how to move and place a camera to use mise-en-scene, you know, if you want to understand what mise-en-scene is, like, watch what Spielberg is doing with his camera in this show. Right. And there are so many moments in it that it's not a show-offy kind of camera, but it is the movement of the camera that's making you feel the things that you're feeling. It's never that static framing that, I mean, throughout any filmed musical, like Chicago, I thought, which won the Oscar, was just so visually boring. It was just like let's plonk a camera down in front of you know Catherine Zeta Jones while she does a dance. Absolutely. This movie never rests on its laurels in that way. Like I feel like everybody working on this project was on the same page about like let's do something Agreed. vibrant, let's do something alive Agreed. and modern. Yep. And and it worked. Anyway, I mean I I couldn't pound the table harder. Okay, I'm swayed. You're right. I mean, I just I feel like there's icon like it's so iconic and timeless in its way, and I'm trapped in historical time right now and being immiserated by it every day. And I maybe it was me that couldn't make the leap. It's beautifully done. Spielberg was. You're right, Dana was born to make a a, a movie musical because he he no one has been better with the camera in terms of its its placement and movement than Spielberg for fifty or so years now. Kushner was 
absolutely, of course, the right person to write this in some respects. I mean, if he had been less white and less male, that might have been good, but but so be it. He did a beautiful job. The one thing I want to say very quickly is that history is a strange thing. It's far stranger than any conceptual or moral judgment that we place upon it. You know, the original West Side Story was powerful in the imagination of Jean-Michel Basquiat. It was one of the cultural things that his Puerto Rican mother took him to and saw when he was a little kid. And it floored him. It completely blew him away. Half Puerto Rican, half Haitian. Uh, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, who goes up to become, you know, obviously like the single greatest breaker of the color barrier in the, uh, barrier in the fine art world. Um, it, it, you just You just don't know, right? Like this urge to retrospectively go back and erase you would erase so much else with it. You know, I mean, obviously certain things, yes, they have to go, but you just never, ever know how it will echo and resonate and change and become something just and beautiful later on. So I just felt like I had to get that in there. Isaac, as always, what a pleasure, man. It's just great to talk to you. It was great to talk to you. And hopefully I'll come back when Steven Spielberg does Camelot. All right. uh, Absolutely, Isaac. And we'll talk to you soon, I hope. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business on our podcast. Dana, what do we have? Stephen, our first item of business is to remind everyone about our call-in episode. It's only two weeks away now. On Wednesday, December 29th, we will have an episode that's all about your questions. It's just questions that you've written in or called into our voicemail number to ask us about uh, about the show, about culture more broadly. It can be a more personal kind of question, or maybe you just have a weird thought experiment that you want to hear us take on together. If so, please give us a call and leave a voicemail message at 402-989-3378. That's 402 402- Nine eight nine three three seven eight, or you can, as always, email us at culturefest at slate.com. We can't wait to tackle these questions. We're already compiling a short list, and we will be talking about them in two weeks. Our second item of business today is just to tell you about our Slate Plus segment. This week, we are answering a question from a listener whose name is Ezra. This is the second time we've answered one of his questions, so he asks good ones. Uh, this time, he's asking, and this is a complicated question that we'll give all the details in in the Plus segment, what city block would you take to a desert island and why? Um, this also includes a historical element where you can put a specific time frame on that city block that you would take to a desert island. I'm just picturing uprooting the entire block by helicopter and taking it to your island. So this question, again, is from a listener named Ezra, and he specified in his question that he wants us to give credit to his friend, a guy named Colin, who gave him this suggestion. So thank you to Ezra and Colin. That bonus segment, of course, is for members of Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. If you're not a member, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for $1 for your first month, you will get ad-free podcasts, bonus segments like the one I just described, which come on many other shows as well, and members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gab Fest. And of course, you will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on slate.com. You will never hit a paywall if you belong to Slate Plus. Once again, to join, go to slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, on with the show. All right. Well, Sex in the City famously followed the love and professional lives of four single women in 90s aughts New York City. I'd call it 
pre-Brooklyn New York City, pre-08 New York City. Uh, in other words, during the manic up phase of stock market real estate and art world booms, there was something rollicking and very fun about it at the time. It was could also be somewhat heartless and cold and self-congratulatory in a way that only boom times can be. The leads were four achingly with it, fashion plates. If it could be a little smug, in its shallowness, uh, I will say the show was capable of expressing the melancholy and loneliness of New York City. Uh, it had a certain pathos and lonely crowd honesty to it. I oddly ended up quite liking the show over the course of its run. We now have And Just Like That on HBO Max. It picks up with three of the four principles. They're now in a post-pandemic New York City. We should all be so lucky. And uh, it, the touchstones have all been appropriately updated, where once Carrie Bradshaw, the lead character played by Sarah Jessica Parker, had a column in the New York Observer, a sex column or a you know romance column in the New York Observer. Now she has a podcast where once Miranda was a corporate lawyer, now she is once again a law student repurposing herself to the social good. And Charlotte remains forever Charlotte, reaching for a complacency so total it will undo her many neuroses. Uh, Dana, why don't you set up the clip for us? Oh, I mean, this is, it doesn't really even need explication. Basically, our three protagonists, minus Kim Cattrall, Samantha, are sitting at brunch, as they always do, at least once per episode. And an old friend, also a fan favorite on the show, Bitsy, comes sweeping by and asks about the whereabouts of their missing companion. And where's the fourth musketeer? Where's Samantha? Oh, um, she's no longer with us. No, 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 she didn't die. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, I'm so sorry, no. I just meant she's not with us. She's in London. Oh, thank God. After the horror show we've been through, I just assume anyone I haven't seen in a while has passed on or gave up and moved to Palm Beach. No, she moved to the UK for work. Smart. Sexy sirens in their 60s are still viable over there. Well, enjoy. Okay, well, we are now joined by Heather Schwedell of Slate to discuss Sex in the City reboot uh, continuation. Uh, Heather, I finally, finally get to fulfill my dream and introduce someone as a neurotic dinosaur. <laughs> um, thank you. Yes, that would be me. <laughs> um, also a staff writer at Slate. <laughs> <laughs> so why is that? Could you just briefly tell me why that's your Twitter handle, subhandle? Um, sure. Uh, no one ever asked me this, so I'm happy to. It's sort of an inside joke with myself. But um, once years ago with friends, I was sort of talking to them about who in our friend group is what Disney character. And I was sort of deciding who everyone was. And I had answers for everyone. And finally, they were like, well, who are you? And that um, my friend was like, you know who you are? You're the dinosaur in Toy Story, who's very neurotic, who I think is voiced by Wallace Shawn. So I've I've sort of kept that as how I think of myself. <laughs> that is such a good mascot character for you. I love it. It's such a great, yeah, it's such a great description of just everything, right? Like we should all aspire to dinosaur and neurosis status. But anyway, okay, so... Heather, uh, I, you know, here we return with this sort of juggernaut comedy from from the heyday of of, uh, of pre-streaming gourmet TV, right? It was like believe a Sunday night ritual to see the new one, but it has to reboot fairly carefully, right? I mean, one thing I think everyone can agree on in 2021 about the original show is that it was Lily White, uh, and it took place in a world that's that's now really kind of gone. What'd you make of this continuation? 
Yeah, I think you're right that the show really wanted to focus on diversifying and sort of correct some of the criticisms that have come up in the past 20 years about um, the, the whiteness and the privilege. And they have made an effort to do that. They've introduced um, three or four non-white characters who are supposed to have substantial roles. And, and they've also sort of have this plot line or maybe character change to the Miranda character <laughs> where um, she's very cringy in trying to navigate race. Uh, there's a scene where she's in her first class at law school and her professor is black and she doesn't realize it's the professor at first. And they have this whole conversation where she says, oh, it was your braids. And I, I think a lot of people have found that very off-putting. But I think that's the show trying to acknowledge um Yes, viewers, we understand the, these women were a little ridiculous and, and would be ridiculous as, as they um, are kind of trying to adjust to today's mores. So I, I don't love watching that those parts. It's hard to watch some of the Miranda parts early on, but the, the show is trying. I don't know if it's altogether successful in that regard. It, it's still centering our, our three uh, classic characters. Um, but it, it's it's trying to address the world around us. It, it's an awkward fit in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dana, it's been pointed out uh, quite astutely, I think, that this is sort of two shows, that there's a, you know, very predictable, in some ways, continuation of the old storyline of these three principal characters from the original show as women now entering their 50s and coping with those kinds of life changes and transitions. Uh, and that show's written with a degree, I mean, it seems to, it seems to, if, to the extent one wants to know what is going on with the 50-something Carrie Bradshaw and Miranda and Charlotte, it's, 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 fine it's it's will satisfy that itch and then added to which is a second show about adjusting to you know a post me too post george floyd uh post trump uh, presidency world and um it's running into a lot more withering criticism on the second score than on the first how do you how do you take each of these and and, and what do you make of the balance between the two I mean, I think I feel more strongly about this show than either of you in in a negative direction. Like, I think it handles both of those threads or all of them terribly. It really <laughs> didn't need to exist in the first place. We've already said goodbye to this group of friends. Yeah, like, they keep mul- coming back times. for their keys, yeah. right? They keep forgetting their their rap or whatever and coming back for another round of goodbyes. Like, there have been, what, two movies now? The second one was horrible. I think we talked about it in this show and it was actually also full of all kinds of racial cringe. Um, but that wasn't the only reason it was terrible. <laughs> And now Samantha's left the show, who was obviously a huge balancing, right? She was a big part of, of, of what made this this friend group, I don't know, diverse is certainly the wrong word racially, but but at least made them into different kinds of characters, right? She she had this different kind of side. I mean, she was often characterized in writing about the show as sort of, you know, a gay man in, in disguise, right? And the show, in fact, was created by a gay man, Darren Starr. And it was something that both used to be off-putting to me about the original show and interesting, was that it never seemed like, although it was ostensibly about female friendship, it never really seemed to me like it was about actual women that I knew. They always seemed to be these kind of um, these kind of characters that came out of this fantasy, fantasy about mm-hmm. femininity and what that meant and fantasy about New York and about money and materialism and all of these things, right? I mean, the New York of Sex and the City is not the New York that 
we or anyone has has ever lived in. And I, that, of course, was probably part of the fantasy appeal of the show. Um, but to be honest, this show was a show that I always used to try to get into back in, I guess, a little bit after it aired, the 2000s or so. I remember having a, a good friend who said, you know, that it was sort of her escape show, that when she just wanted to binge on something trashy and fun, she would rent at the time a, a tape, a VHS tape of Sex and the City and watch a season of it. And I would try to escape into it in that way and mm-hmm. always got bored after an episode or two, found the humor really cringy. I couldn't stand the voiceover puns. I couldn't stand the materialism of the show. I mean, I, I tried to have it be a kind of escape valve for me and just always gave up. Although I've seen enough episodes to have a very good sense of, you know, what the show's ethos is and what it's who its recurring characters are, etc. I kind of am familiar with that whole world, but it never, ever appealed to mm-hmm. me as a place to escape into. Right. But the one thing I'd say is that if you were, you were, you were, one would be getting at something real or real enough if one were to trace the arc of New York City, you know, uh, from the 70s to the 90s by starting by watching Taxi Driver, you know, and the drama of Travis Bickle and and streets awash in like sewage and and blood and, and, you know, you know, dubiously spilled semen to, you know, this to to sex in the city in the 90s and the early aughts. And and, you know, there's no doubt that that Sex in the City doesn't approximate a real city in some sense, but there's a way in which New York itself began to approximate the simulacrum, the fake city of Sex in the City. Agree, and which is more reason it. to dislike it. I I agree, but it's a fascinating exercise, especially because I lived in the Far West Village, kind of during the phase where, where I mean, I got there. You know, I, I mean, people would laugh in my face if I said I got there early. I got there by their standards quite late, but in the early to mid '90s, I guess is really when I started and then and then got an apartment or whatever. And then just eventually it turned into this odd, you know, kind of, you know, just sort of turned into an odd simulacrum where you would run into Sarah Jessica Parker on the street and you just felt as though your television and your urban landscape had somehow melded into one postmodern, you know, pastiche or something. I mean, and, and the one thing, I, a couple things. One is that, you know, like Rome is burning, right? I do not want to go back to 1995, right? There's this aspirational Manhattan universe that doesn't exist in the. Sh- I mean, the the, the 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 original show didn't exist in the shadow of you know global warming and an impending American civil war, and you know ne- you know no one probably could have defined like scarcely anybody watching it could have defined the word neoliberalism, you know, when it came to the end of its first run. I just cannot. I, Heather, I can find no solace in this continuation. Um, I do want to defend the show a little, oh, actually. Excellent, excellent. Um, I think, you know, when I heard the show was going forward without Kim Cattrall, I, I was not happy about that. I think she's an essential piece of the mix. I just, I think we've had too many reboots. Um, you know, why couldn't we just let it end? And as Dana said, it did not end, you know, at its best. It ended on the movie, which is why the second movie revile right. the second movie. Yes. Um, but then it came back and I can't not watch anything associated with sex in the city. It, you know, whatever they're doing, if, if they reboot it again, when they're in their seventies, I'm going to be watching that this show has been such a touchstone to me. And it's, I was worried that it was going to be atrocious and it's not unwatchable. There are aspects of it that I like. I like seeing these characters again. I think 
I think there are things about the show that are really good and it's never gotten enough credit for. One of them is Sarah Jessica Parker's acting. Um, I, I think she's wonderful in the show and it, it's just great watching her again. And I don't know. I, I just don't think it's it doesn't make me despair as much as mm-hmm. you guys. But but I also think that must be generational because I watched this show when I was growing up and, um, you know, I didn't have any sense of, oh, this is totally a fake New York City. Um, it probably did maybe create my conception of New York a little bit. I, um, I don't want to say I was one of those people who moved here to live a Carrie Bradshaw life because I didn't, but I just think it's different for, for people who grew up watching it, um, don't have some of, uh, the same, hang-ups about how maybe it ruined New York City. <laughs> <laughs> no, I no doubt no doubt about it. That was an okay boomer moment. But uh, I, the one thing I'd say in my defense is that is that I did like the show and and at moments genuinely admired it for just the reasons you point to, especially her acting performance, which had uh, uh, surprising depths to it. Uh, almost regardless of the dialogue, she was sometimes forced to to recite. I thought. Um, uh, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker did an amazing job in the show, and the show did get at what tiny self-created bubbles of meaning, especially those rooted in friendship and female friendship, might mean in a world dominated by envy and competition. So it was somewhat wise to its own tendency to give in to materialism or celebrate materialism, and and even a degree of kind of fly-by-night sexuality it was it was it was not an unshrewd or unwise production in its original iteration all right all right we gotta we gotta wrap here but uh, dana before we go chances you will watch episode three when it drops Oh, basically zero. Maybe if my friend was back in town, if my dear old college friend who unsuccessfully tried to get me to like this show in the 2000s, and but while understanding all its flaws, and then who sat beside me and jeered at these two episodes, if she comes back to visit, I'll fire up another episode with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heather, chances you will wait more than, say, six hours after episode three drops to watch it. Um, I will be watching it as soon as humanly possible <laughs> after it drops. <laughs> I, I'm 75% episode three. I, I, I'd say my chances probably drop precipitously after that for what it's worth. Okay, it's called And Just Like That. It's on HBO Max. Uh, we vary in our estimations. Tell us what you thought. Send us an email. Heather, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a total delight. Thank you for having me. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. 
All right. Well, New York Magazine has what uh, I think Dan and I agree is a pretty wonderful package, I think they call it, in the magazine business about New York City and movies. It discusses what role New York City played in the early creation and life of the movies before they moved westward for a variety of, uh, of reasons. Um, but also what what role New York City has played as a backdrop, as a character in movies. And as one centerpiece of the whole wonderful package, there's a list of roughly 100 New York City movies, greatest New York City movies of all time. Dana, this is an occasion to think about something you must think about all the time. I think about it. I mean, you know, I went to movies in New York City in the 70s and 80s, both being in the city, standing in line in the city to see iconic movies about the city. Uh, you know, American movies in New York City are 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 deeply intervolved with one another. Talk a little bit about that, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I was actually thinking that it's kind of fun that this is maybe our first ever two-person-only Gabfest segment, right? It's just you and I talking about New York and the movies, which is kind of this perfect Reese's Peanut Butter Cup combination because you're from New York, right? As you say, grew up seeing movies about the place you were living at the same time. I am a movie critic who grew up outside New York and honestly, I feel like came here in large part because of some of these movies. You know, it's because of the world that I came up with in my mind based on many of the movies that appear on this list that I, plus some trips here when... My first trip here when I was 11 with my parents was very formative for my sense that that's where I want to live when I grow up. But but movies were a huge, huge part of it. So, yeah, this is a wonderful list. Um, I'm not even a, a list person. I'm not one of those people who usually will click on a list and watch people argue about the list on social media. But if it's New York in the movies, I admit you got me. And this is a really mm-hmm. excellently done list. Like not only are the choices interesting and inventive with lots of stuff on there you might not have thought of, but the little capsule blurbs written by, you know, a variety of culture critics from Vulture are really excellent little, you know, pieces of criticism in themselves. So I really recommend that even non-list likers like myself take a scroll through this list. Agreed. It's absolutely, absolutely marvelous. It also, Dana, I had never really thought of it in these terms before. Isn't it funny how New York tends to either be idealized as a kind of utopia or um, not quite anathematized, but but treated as potentially a dystopia? Like it's just the, something about the moods, the emotions of the film, but also the, 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 the maker of the film, the deep sort of associations one has it's just like it, it as a as a canvas for projecting one's large scale emotions onto nothing is quite like new york which is just ungraspable through any individual's perspective and so you almost have to use your imagination to think of it as a as a whole entity in some sense it's it's sublime in the initial sense of the word like our consciousness isn't big enough to understand this thing you know seething around you and also going so far up into the sky filled with so many diverse people uh crowded on a geographically constrained space you know it's just uh it's just an incredible medley right yeah i mean as you were saying that i was thinking it's sort of the quintessential american film location which is particularly strange given that it's not the center of american filmmaking of course it was as is is written about really excellently in the in the framing leading up to this list um this great essay by bilga ibiri that that frames the list um and he talks a bit about how you know american movie making was born on the east coast not the west in new york and in new jersey where thomas edison's studio was and even in the years you know after the 1910s when hollywood started to grow and filmmaking migrated 
Midwest, there's still this fantasy New York, the film New York, which shows up in a lot of these things on the list. I mean, they're not by any means all location shoots because for many decades, New York was a very difficult and expensive place to make movies. I mean, it still is a difficult and expensive place to make movies, but it was essentially prohibitive to make movies in New York, right, for a long, long period of the 20th century. And so there's some things on this list like George Cukor's The Women, which I thought was this great, surprising addition, which takes place in a completely fantasy, you know, Hollywood studio location kind of New York, but which mm. does completely get at that sort of idea of urban sophistication, you know, and uh, and the mingling of different social types and so forth that we associate with New York in the movies. As soon as I heard we were doing this, I started compiling a list and I wanted to make the list before I read their list because I suspected that most of my list would be on there and I just didn't want to whatever be reactive in the first instance, and lo and behold, I think all of mine were on there, but there are just, you couldn't not include them. Uh, though there was one that really interested me, which was the the somewhat loving, somewhat openly loving inclusion of Annie Hall, which um, very quickly, I, I, I'm making no case to re- rehabilitate Woody Allen. I'm on the fence as to whether it's, you know, Manhattan's unwatchable at this point for its subject matter. Uh, but Annie Hall, you, the, the, some credit where credit is due, you know, Woody Allen was one of the people who really stuck with New York City in the 70s while people were either fleeing it or uh, uh, depicting it as a kind of urban hellscape. And he said, no, 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 the city is still a paradise. You have to bring imagination and wit to it, but I'd still rather live here than anywhere in the world. And he invoked that city beautifully in that movie. He also created the modern rom-com with it. Uh, Every single rom-com since has used Annie Hall as something of a template. It's also a very, very, very funny movie, but as a love letter to New York, it's uh, to me way more convincing than Manhattan uh, because it it doesn't over-idealize the city at all. Um, But moving quickly for there, you have to have one from Scorsese. I'd take King of Comedy because it gets at what's kind of just queasy and sickening about the, about the, need to attach to the rich and the famous in New York City or feel like you've been somewhat orphaned. Uh, it's it's a really dark movie that kind of fell through the cracks, got rediscovered recently because it's clearly the precursor to the Joker, uh, recent Joker movie. But um, uh, I have so many, I have so many more. I mean, the great outer, outer borough movies, maybe Saturday Night Fever, just, I mean, Travolta going over that bridge, Travolta dancing. I mean, just that, incredible, but just, just, you know, and then Dog Day Afternoon, which was very high on my list, very high on theirs. Uh, the great Sidney Lumet uh, hostage uh, melodrama, in a way, from Thriller from the from the 70s. But a couple, a, like one or two, unexpe- I mean, you know, unexpected on a first pass, maybe movies. You know, the f- very first hip-hop movie, Wild Style, by Chuck Ahern, with uh, Lee Quinones, the great, truly great uh, graffiti artist, and uh, Fab Five Freddy and various others before before all of what was happening under the rubric of hip hop really had even been given the name hip hop. It really understood that breakdancing, uh, bombing and tagging, and rapping, and the party scene in the Bronx were all of a of a culture of a of a, a somewhat somewhat unified uh, subculture and expressing an important pride and oppositional attitude. And that movie. Is, a, is an amazing document of that, and I think is one of the great New York City movies of all time. Dana, let's let's hear from you. 
Uh, okay, as you were talking, I started scribbling down some some titles, and uh, and I was scrolling through the list to see if they're on there. It's a list of 101 movies, so it takes a while to scroll through it, and I know some of these are on there. I think at least one of them isn't, but here's some titles I'll just throw out, which I think, Steve, you probably would, would, would make a, a, at least a long list for you as well. Um, Metropolitan, Whit Stillman's Metro- oh Metropolitan, God, yeah. right? About a very specific New York that I think you're probably familiar with, this sort of, you know, much, Deb, yeah. right? Upper East Side World, um, great piece of social comedy. Also a great Christmas movie if you're looking for some holiday viewing. And also um, starring good friend of the program, uh, uh, Chris Eigenman. That's true. Wonderful. That's true. That who may be listening. I'm not even throwing it out for him, but hello, Chris. Thank you for that character in Metropolitan. He is unforgettable. Um, Do the Right Thing, of course, yes. uh, which is on the list, but not as high up as I might have thought. I'm not, I'm not seeing which number it is now, but I know that the number one movie on the list, do you want to announce what it is? It was something of a surprise to me as I scrolled up to it. It's a different I, Spike Lee movie. I don't even remember the 25th hour. It was the 25th hour. Yep. Dana, I was surprised too. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I've never seen the 25th hour. I didn't know it was regarded even as like one of the better, not, you know, m- much less best Spike Lee movie, much less the best New York movie p- potentially of all time. I, I, of course, now I have to see it. Wow. Okay. Maybe we should do a, a throwback oh, yeah. segment on, on yes. 25th hour because it is an essential, essential Spike Lee movie. I mean, I don't know that it's my favorite one. I think I sometimes feel bad about this because it's so basic, but I think Do the Right Thing is still my favorite Spike Lee movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Cassavetti's Shadows, which is on the list, I think I would have put even higher. Um, I think feel like Cassavetti's Shadows is a part of that that New York that I saw on screen and wanted to live in, right? Like that mm. kind of bustling, jostling, you know, diverse, weird, like eccentric, unexpected world where anything could happen. It's a little bit the New York, I mean, it's roughly the same time frame as the New York of Midnight Cowboy, which is also on the list, right? But it's, it's a very different vision of, of the world. So Cassavetti's Shadows would be on there. Great surprise edition, or maybe not surprise, but a way too underknown movie is Joan Micklin Silver's Hester Street, which is this just gorgeous, like perfect little black and white fable that's set on the Lower East Side that's about Jewish immigrants uh, in the turn of the 20th century, I believe, around that time with Carol Kane, an extraordinary, extraordinary part. If you haven't seen Hester Street, Steve, you definitely have to see that one I've never seen it. I mean, I'm generating a must-watch list from this segment, and I cannot wait to revisit those. There's a film class that I took, a really formative film class that I took in, in summer school back in high school where the wonderful professor showed Hester Street and it was just, it was such a formative movie for me. Okay, King Vidor's The Crowd, one of the few silent movies on this list. Um, I would have, an, I have another one to add to it in a minute, but King Vidor's The Crowd is another that, I mean, it's table pounding time if you haven't seen this movie. And if you're somebody who thinks, well, silent movies are difficult and I don't know if I can sort of, you know, get over this lack of dialogue. I mean, this is one of those movies that you forget is silent because the story that it tells is so... It doesn't need language, right? The story it tells is so direct and so beautifully written and acted and framed. Uh, King Vidor's The Crowd is one of the masterpieces of the American cinema. So to have it on this this list of great New York movies was just kind of a cherry on top. Uh, Naked City, a movie that very much was filmed on location and that kind of revolutionized location filming when it was made in a noir that takes place on the streets of, of New York and that's all about, you know, chasing a criminal on foot races through streets and across, you know, bridge pilings. And it just, it shows New York at that time in 1948 when the movie was made and kind of a document of the streets and also really started this trend of starting to film things more on location in New York and in other cities and, and valuing, you know, street footage as well as 
creating, you know, studio sets of, of urban locations. Um, speaking of objectionable canceled directors, Rosemary's Baby has to be on the list, right? Yeah. With its, inc- its incredible geography of the of the Dakota right. on the Upper West yes. Side and, and is on their list, um, but would, would have been on my short list as well. Um, another silent that I didn't see on here um, and which obviously is dear to my heart is Buster Keaton's The Cameraman, which has some incredible, incredible location shooting on New York at the beginning of the movie. And the backstory on that is that they had to leave New York, the, the crew filming The Cameraman, because Keaton was too recognizable. You know, he was so famous ah, by that time, great. 1927, that they couldn't yeah. set up a camera without being mobbed and, and having their shots ruined, etc. But in this very brief period, I think it was just a few days that he and his crew were, were sent by MGM to New York to do location filming. They got all these amazing shots of what New York looked like right then, specifically and completely empty Yankee Stadium. I'm sure you've seen this scene, Steve. And mm-hmm. Buster Keaton pantomiming an entire game of baseball where he plays all the positions in an empty Yankee Stadium. And that's just such a beautiful found footage sort of moment, right? Because they happened to go up to Yankee Stadium. There was no game happening that day. They asked permission to film. It was completely improvised and unplanned. And at the moment that he's acting out this game all by himself on the field, there's this train, an elevated train that passes in the background, you know, just a purely unscriptable moment of that Mm -hmm. passing train. It's just a wonderful, wonderful piece of, um, of found footage. That's a, a wonderful list, and we'll po- post a l- link to it. But uh, so pulling the camera out a little bit, what I notice about a lot of yours and almost all of my very favorites is is that they combine in a single vision the utopian and dystopian aspects of the city. That it's a you know it is just the greatest place in America to lose and or find your own soul, and. Um, uh, it's especially true of a, of a couple of these. Um, I mean, do the right thing. You know, there's kind of an urban, highly idealized urban village of Bed-Stuy uh, that's also a nightmare of, of racial antagonism and, and kind of colonial style white policing, obviously. Um, we could go on forever. Let's please each select one that we haven't seen, watch it, and then do a plus on it. Excellent idea. We'll start with 25th Hour. Brilliant. And uh, um, and take it from there. Okay. Well, uh, kudos to New York Magazine. You guys really nailed it on this. A delight to talk about. Uh, and we'd love to hear from our listeners. Uh, you know what is what, what's on your list. All right, moving on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Okay, so only two of us to endorse this uh, week. Dana, let's, let's do this. What do you got? Well, my endorsement flows perfectly out of our New York City in the movies discussion. It's two different books about New York City in the movies. Uh, they're both really excellent, and they don't cannibalize each other. Like, both of them cover that that question from slightly different angles. The first one is a very new book. It just came out slightly over a month ago called Fun City Cinema. It's by Jason Bailey, who's a film critic and film historian sort of a colleague, a friend of mine, but I'm not log rolling. I truly love his book. So Fun City Cinema is kind of a coffee table style photography book about the history of filmmaking in and about New York. And it also has, it's sort of itemized by blurb, right? So there's sort of mini essays that pop up through the book on on certain movies, but other parts of it are just sort of recording, you know, the richness of imagery. So you've got Ratso Rizzo, you know, you've got mm. Travis Bickle's eyes, just really beautiful design in this book too. So Fun City Cinema by Jason Bailey is the first recommendation. The second one, which is a book that Jason cites 
cites as one of his influences in his introduction to his book is the classic Celluloid Skyline by James Sanders. Do you know this book, Steve? I do not know that book. It's really, really up your alley. So so James Sanders, among other things, is a collaborator with Rick Burns. He wrote the the screenplay or whatever you want to call it. He wrote the narration for that Rick Burns series about the history of New York, which is so fantastic, which I don't think we talked about on the show because maybe we weren't doing our show at the time. But anyway, he's a wonderful writer and he wrote a book over the course of many years of his life. I think he took 10 years or something to write this book. Also sort of coffee table style full of gorgeous photographs. That's all about the sort of image of New York in the movies. It's, it's more about that imaginary New York, including the, the studio backlot New York that I was talking about. And Sanders has a background as an architect and has worked as an architect for many years, so he writes as well about sort of the architecture of New York and the dream architecture of it that appears in Hollywood backlots. It's just gorgeous, the research, the images, everything. And I believe it just came out in November in a new updated edition with some post-9-11 stuff because it had come out just right around the, the cusp of that time. Anyway, so those are my two titles, Fun City Cinema by Jason Bailey, Celluloid Skyline by James Sanders, two great books about New York in the movies. All right, very quickly, I've got two uh, endorsements. I know this is a good one because whenever I play a song, especially an old fogey song that absolutely transfixes one of my daughters as we play it, and it's just one of those moments where you're both silent and you know you're having the same set of emotions as you listen, or at least the depth of like, you know, admiration for the song or feeling for the song. Uh, So I, I, I love this song. Dana, what are your associations with the name Janice Ian? Uh, 17. She learned the truth at 17. That's the only song I can think of by her. Exactly. Um, but, but I don't think she was a one-hit wonder. She had other songs, right? That's an incredible song, by the way. I, right, exactly. I think as a consequence of the, you know, just saturating uh, 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 radio play that the song 17 got back in the 1970s on through the 80s, it had real legs. A certain kind of AM radio station would just always, you know, and it's it's in its way a wonderful song. It just got played too much, and it's like it has a kind of weepy, uh, uh, slightly overdone quality to it. On that same album, Between the Lines, which is a, a wonderful album, there's a song called Watercolors by Janice Ian that I wish people knew as well as they knew Seventeen. Is such a great song. The songwriting, the production, the vocal performance. It it's just one of those. It's like get ready to sew yourself back up because you're going to get cleaved in half. Just prepare yourself for it. So Whoa. It's album re- title one more time? Album title is Between the Lines and it is a great album and it has 17 on it, but it also has Watercolors, which I regard as just a vastly superior and emotionally true song, but uh, up to you, but ta- take a listen to it. I think it's amazing. And then very quickly, I mean, among the, I, this person does not need an endorsement from me. I mean, he's a eminence beyond eminence and he's well known already, but Kwame uh, Anthony Appiah wrote a very, very interesting book review essay in the New York Review of Books about the David, posthumous David Graeber book, Graeber being the sociologist, kind of rogue ish, so anti-institutionalist sociologist who sort of bounced around between teaching jobs. He wrote a, a kind of extraordinary book about the history of debt, the first 5,000 years um, that was quite well received and that broke him into wider consciousness. He's associated as kind of a muse or an intellectual leader is the wrong word. He was an anarchist and didn't want to be a leader for Occupy. And this co-written book has emerged after his untimely death. Uh, the, he came, there was a posthumous book by Graeber. It's called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. Uh, and it, it, it's very quickly, it's argument in, in totally ridiculous thumbnail is it's an attempt to go back over many, I mean, almost 
encyclopedically go back over the various ways in which human beings have governed themselves as a way of arguing how often human beings did not use anything like the model of hierarchy or central, you know, hierarchical power, hierarchical bureaucratized power or centralized or quasi authoritarian power, that there were far more experiments in anarchism in human history, too many at least to argue that there's some anthropological constant whereby we need certain forms of authority in order to be governed. And enough anthropological evidence, according to Graeber, that that anarchism is a should be thought of as a completely live possibility or forms of anarchism um, for humanity. Now, I'm in, I'm very sympathetic to these arguments in one sense and, and suspicious of them in another. It's the kind of thing, it's a book I probably wasn't going to read and try to sort out my feelings. Appia has one of the great essays I've read in a long time about it because it is so respectful of what who Graeber was and what he was trying to accomplish and what he was trying to do in this book. At the same time, I, it, I wouldn't say it demolishes it exactly, Appiah managed to do all things at once. He managed to bring learnedness, uh, moral sensitivity, seriousness in refuting something without being disrespectful to its really moving and noble aims. I, I really recommend this essay. The essay is in the New York Review of Books. It's called Digging for Utopia uh, by Kwame Anthony Appiah, who's uh, an eminence beyond eminence. He doesn't need me to recommend his writing. But I thought this one in particular was just... Uh, quite extraordinary. Dana, thank you so much. And it's kind of fun piloting the ship, just the two of us, but not quite the same, but we didn't go too off balance, I don't think. Yeah, I, I really miss having Julia, and I really hope she's feeling good and comes back next week. But that was a fun little intimate tete-a-tete about New York and movies, I have to say. Totally agree. Okay, you'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. And please do email us at culturefest at slate.com. Uh, our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Patel, a wonderful friend of this program. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and our wonderful fill-ins, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon.